the Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. There are all kinds of jobs that we don't see in America. Don't see the people who do them. Don't see the work they're doing. Don't see the toll that work takes on them. Author I.L. Press says that's a cornerstone of American inequality, a hidden one for most of us. We'll talk with I.L. Press today about dirty work, as he calls it in his new book, and how we create a more just way of thinking about work in America and around the world. It's next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. And welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. And as always, thanks for tuning in. The worst things that we subject others to do in this world are often things that we don't even see. People working in slaughterhouses, jails or prisons, doing military operations. So many of these jobs are grotesque and difficult and something we generally would not want to do. And often these tasks are conducted behind closed barriers. One reason for that is we just don't want to see the tragic things happening around us. We can't stomach it and we want to go on with our lives pretending that maybe it's not really happening. There are a lot of examples of this in modern American life. For the most part, we don't see Amazon workers toiling in factories, accruing injuries so we can get our products in 24 hours or less. We don't see Southern Border Patrol agents who are ordered to stop people from coming into this country, sometimes subjecting these migrants to dying in a desert that has no food or water. And there's a question about the dynamic here, the interaction. Why do we place people in these jobs in the first place? Why do we force people to enact such harm onto others as a way of earning a paycheck? Why do we tolerate this kind of work. I.L. Press directly and indirectly asked these questions in his new book, Dirty Work, Essential Jobs and the Hidden Toll of Inequality in America. But his book goes even further. Dirty Work interrogates the moral structure of our societies. It asks whether people are unethical or if their jobs simply give them no choice in making unethical decisions. It wonders why people should have to do work that's often considered immoral at all. And the book pushes all of us to consider if we can create a more equal and fair society that doesn't force others to carry out unethical or really awful tasks that subject animals or humans to an uncomfortable degree of suffering. In addition to writing this book, I.L. Press is a writer and a journalist who contributes to a number of publications, including The New Yorker and The New York Times. We've got him with us today to talk about what dirty work is and whether it's possible to build a world where it doesn't exist. I.L. Press, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you so much. Great to be with you. Yeah. So let's start with this term, dirty work, as you describe it, uh, who does this work, uh, and what is this work in your view? What, what makes up dirty work? Yeah, so the definition I give in the book is a little different than um, the one that I think most people think of when they hear just the phrase dirty work, um, because, you know, it's a colloquial expression that, that is associated with 
I, I think jobs or tasks that are kind of physically dirtying, uh, like hauling the garbage off the streets. Um, but um, in my book, dirty work refers to something different. It refers to um, morally troubling activities that um, are carried out with the tacit consent of you know, a large part of society, but that are often hidden from view, as, as you stated in your introduction. So things like um, working on the lines of industrial slaughterhouses, which supply you know, uh, the meat and poultry that, that feeds the country, um, or working inside the, the wards, the mental health wards of America's jails and prisons. And, and jails and prisons in America have actually become our largest mental health institutions. And in these jobs, as well as in the other jobs that I look at in the book, um, there are inevitable moral dilemmas that come up for, for the folks who are tasked with doing this work. And this gets to the second question you asked. So who are those people? Um, and in a nutshell, you know, you'd have to read the book to, to get a more, a more detailed sense. But, but the basic point of the book is that um, these, these are not jobs that are, are distributed to society's elites. You know, you don't have graduates from Harvard and Princeton being asked to do these things. Um, you don't have the sons and daughters of senators and um, lobbyists. Uh, you, the work that I look at in the book tends to be delegated to the least advantaged, uh, to people in poorer parts of the country, uh, where often um, you know the good jobs have left, uh, the the uh, factories have closed, uh, the mills have shut down, and what's left is is you know the local county jail um, or um, you know a, a place where. Uh, in the middle of uh, a rural area where there aren't a lot of good jobs, and suddenly there's a big industrial slaughterhouse there um, that uh, starts recruiting not only some of the local folks who work around, but um, but a lot of undocumented people and immigrants uh, to work. Um, and and so what I argue in the book or try to show is that um, this is indeed a form of inequality, but it's very hidden. It's it's not it's not something we notice. I think most people, especially after the pandemic, um, are aware that, you know, people who work more menial, less uh, lucrative types of jobs, you know, grocery clerks and bus drivers and, and um, you know, warehouse handlers, that they shoulder the bulk of the physical risks mm-hmm. that come with work, right? We, we, we saw that during the pandemic when when these folks were out there doing work and, and getting sick while other people were sitting at their computers, um, you know, getting packages delivered to them and food delivered to them. Um, and that kind of, I think, is a general awareness um, that you're more likely to get hurt, to be exposed to, um, you know, a virus, to be exposed to injury if you do, um, you know, more blue-collar work, more, uh, uh, more marginal types of labor. Um, but I think the same point applies to the moral divide in our labor force. That, that is, that, that jobs that are stigmatized, jobs that put people in very difficult moral situations that require them to numb themselves in some way, um, that these jobs, too, uh, tend to be delegated to the least advantaged. And, and so in, in that sense, um, we have not just uh, you know, economic inequality, but also moral inequality. Yeah. Yeah. And so we start the book inside the walls, uh, inside the walls of prison, really. Um, let's talk about um, that work and, and why, you, why you highlight it uh, up front in the book. Yeah. So I wanted to take readers on journeys into hidden spaces, um, places that... Um, we all know exist um, in our society, but that that a large number of people never go near, never see the insides of, and that is a common feature of what I call dirty work that that it takes place behind closed doors. And prisons are a really vivid example of that. Jails and prisons, 
And in the particular prison I focus on in the, at the start of the book, this is a prison called the Dade Correctional Institution, and it's located about an hour south of Miami, um, but it is literally a world away from, you know, the Miami that most people think of when they go for vacation or they think of beaches. Mm-hmm. Um, and at this particular prison, I follow uh, initially the story of a woman named Harriet Kriskovsky who worked in the mental health ward um, and who ends up getting enmeshed in really wrenching moral dilemmas while she's working there. And talk about those moral dilemmas and the way in which it takes not just kind of a physical toll, the work, but it takes this emotional and mental toll as well. Yeah, so Harriet um, is, is a really good example of that. And she, when she started this work, it was post-recession, uh, you know, after the 2008 Great Recession, there were not a lot of jobs. Um, and she ends up getting a job at Dade. Um, she had never worked in a prison before. It was an all-male institution. Uh, she's a young woman uh, working in the mental health ward. She wants to go into that kind of work, but she's a little scared. Um, and she also you know, goes into it thinking, um, well, at least the guards will have my back uh, if anything happens. Um, when she goes into the prison and starts working there, she starts hearing the uh, the prisoners in the um, in the mental health ward uh, tell her that they're being mistreated. Um, some of them start telling her that they're they're not getting their meals. Um, they're getting empty meal trays. Um, she starts witnessing some really rough mistreatment, um, and uh, she is in charge of taking a group of guys into the rec yard, which is um, this sort of open area it's outside, but of course it's, it's enclosed and fenced, but it is the only time that, the, that these guys get to be outside and kind of get some fresh air and so sunlight. And she's supposed to do this on Sundays and she keeps being told for different reasons. She can't take them out. You know, it's, it's one excuse after another. And, and so eventually she complains about this in an email uh, to her boss and the boss, you know, uh, uh, is not happy about this because the guards are not happy about this. Mm-hmm. And what Harriet soon discovers after that is that because she has spoken out about what she feels is being done, um, she's in a, a group session with a, with a bunch of uh, the prisoners, and suddenly the guard disappears, who's supposed to be at the door, you know, for her protection, disappears, leaving her alone. Um, she goes into the rec yard one day, and again, she's left on her own. And she sent a message that all of the mental health workers at this prison were sent, and, and in fact that, that mental health workers in all jails and prisons are sent, which is basically, you know, we run this place, we being the security personnel, the guards, um, and don't, you know, step out of line. If, if you have a problem, keep it to yourself. Um, and the problem here is that Harriet is then in the position of realizing that there's a lot of abuse and mistreatment going on, and she wants to say something about it, but she doesn't say anything about it because she's been sent this message. Mm. Um, and it proceeds, that's the sort of first part of the story, and, and you know, she's, she's troubled by all this. She eventually learns that the abuse at this particular prison reached a really extreme uh, uh, point, and that some of the mentally ill prisoners at Dade were being locked inside a shower with scalding water directed at them mm. and were not allowed out of this shower. Um, and she learns this when an, an, a prisoner named Darren Rainey dies inside this shower. And Harriet is horrified by this and, and again, wants, wants to report it, but doesn't report it. And in fact, none of the staff reported it. Um, we only know it happened because another prisoner ended up leaking the story to the Miami Herald. But all of this transpires within this sort of enclosed institution 
where, as I suggest, you know, dirty work of this kind mm-hmm. can unfold and usually unfolds without us ever learning about it. Yeah. And there is something about the humanity of both the worker here and the people that they are you know charged with with taking care of i guess in, in, in kind of a crude sense um that bonds them together i think in a way and separates them really from the rest of us i mean what what they have in common is that they're having this experience on on both sides of it it's anguishing for them and in a way that there isn't, as you point out in the book, um, there isn't a connection to the rest of us. It is hidden. It is separate by design. That's right. And and I think that I want to stress the humanity part of it because I really feel like um, the reason that Harriet and, and some of the other co-workers I, I interviewed who were, were working at Dade um, were so troubled by this um, is that is that they do have, you know, an ethical compass that, that, that was violated as, as they were seeing this. And by the way, Harriet did not expect that. She went into this job, as I said, really afraid. Uh, she thought the good guys were the guards and the bad guys were the prisoners. Mm-hmm. It was black and white for her. She said that to me. I had a very black and white view of this. You know, these, there were good guys, there were bad guys. She starts to do this work and realize it's more complicated than that. And she discovers her own sympathy to her surprise uh, with some of the folks she is tasked with just, you know, trying to help and, and care for. Um, and as I said, you know, a lot of the, you know, we, we don't have enough mental health care and institutions and community-based institutions in this country, whether it's Detroit or Miami. And so prisons and jails end up taking on that role. And I really think as institutions, they are forced to do the dirty work of a society that has decided this isn't important enough to us. You know, we'd rather not spend the money to provide better services, more humane conditions. And I should say that in the book, um, you know, I, I, I go on to interview some of the prison guards who, who um, both uh, you know, worked in Florida and in other states. And, you know, one of the first things they say is, you know, we weren't given any training to to do this. And indeed, I, I, I speak with a, a guy named Bill Curtis, who was a guard, and, and he kept a journal while he was in working in Florida's prisons. And that's one of the points he, 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 he initially, you know, sort of harped on. He's like, wow, there, there are so many, you know, people here who need mental, mental health services. We weren't trained to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, we're trained to just keep them locked up. And so it's the guards, too, that are placed in these, um, you know, really morally compromised positions uh, and have to adjust to it. Um, And I think that, you know, the larger question I'd I'd like readers to ask is not, you know, what's wrong with the workers who do this, but what is it about our society that we've decided it's okay to just kind of, you know, keep this work very hidden and away from us um, because we we just don't want to, you know, maybe have to come up with uh, a more expensive solution or, or a solution that, um, you know, would involve uh, a different set of policies, a different yeah. set of priorities. Yeah. And we don't we don't want to see. I mean, there is a fundamental looking away, I guess, from these places and what happens in them that is kind of essential to us being okay with with our lives and going on with them. Absolutely. And I should say one of the, you know, to get back to Harriet and, and some of the other folks I wrote about, um, one of the things that I think they experience is moral injury. And uh, this is a term that some folks may, may have heard in the context of um, military uh, veterans, because in, in the past decade or so, along with PTSD, uh, there's been a growing conversation within the military about uh, soldiers who served in Iraq and Afghanistan and witnessed things um, or even participated in things 
that um, within the context of war are acceptable, but that that go against their own basic ethical uh, values. Mm-hmm. And when you're placed in that situation, which is so common in war, um, there's an aftermath. And, you know, how do you make sense of, of what just happened? And moral injury is a term for the kind of you know, transgressions that, that people often witnessed or, or took part in and, and have to live with afterwards. And my book is, is really taking that idea and some of the other kind of emotional wounds of this kind of work and looking at how it reverberates in, in other parts of our society, whether it's prisons, whether it's slaughterhouses, um, you know, in other places. Um, and we, don't, we can't put a dollar value on that kind of injury, but it can be you know, really, really debilitating to a person. It can, it can, it can affect them no less than you know, not having enough money at the end of the, the month to pay your rent. Um, so that, that is how the, the sort of inequality piece, I think, ties into all of this. Yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation with uh, author I.L. Press about his book, Dirty Work, Essential Jobs and the Hidden Toll of Inequality in America. I want to get going with you on the phones and on social media as well. Why do we have dirty or immoral tasks as part of work? Is it a necessity for humans to function and flourish? Uh, Do some have to toil while others kind of bask in the easiness of technology and convenience? What would a world without this kind of work look like? Also, give us a call and let us know. Are you working in some place like this, a prison or a slaughterhouse or some other kind of invisible work that most people would think of as quote-unquote undesirable. What are the things you deal with on a daily basis? How do you continue to do that job? And do you wish that life could be different, that uh, society were organized in a way that didn't require that? 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can work you into the conversation that way. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Today on 1019 WDT, I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. We're talking with I.L. Press this hour. He's the author of Dirty Work, Essential Jobs, and the Hidden Toll of Inequality in America. We're talking about hidden jobs, uh, jobs in prisons, jobs in mental institutions, jobs working the border, uh, the things that we don't really get to see or maybe don't want to see people doing in our society and how that work ties in with the rest of our lives. Does it make our lives easier to have people doing these things and doing them out of sight? Is that right? Uh, Is there another way we could think of work and those tasks that would would spare the people who are doing it, not just the the physical toll of the work, but also the mental and emotional toll of that work? Uh, As always, we want you to be part of the conversation. Give us a call and tell us what you think about these kinds of tasks and whether you're somebody who does work like this? Uh, what is that like on a day-to-day basis? Uh, how do you continue to do work if you have a job that uh, you think asks you to do something that's not moral, that's not right? Uh, also, give us a sense of how you might reorganize things so that uh, people did not have to do that. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can work you into the conversation. Before we get to uh, our listeners, IL, I want to talk about shadow people, which is another part of your book. And it, it describes a different kind of hidden work, a different kind of, I guess, looking away from the kinds of things people are asked to do. 
Yeah, the shadow people um, in in my book are uh, undocumented immigrants who are working in a poultry slaughterhouse um, in Texas that I um, that I spent some time in and, and, and interviewed those workers. And um, you know, uh, the striking thing, um, you know, it, it, when we talked about prisons, I, I mentioned that this is. You know, a prison is a state or, or sometimes a federal institution. Um, and uh, so in that sense, there is a sort of collective, uh, you know, these things operate in our name, wh- whether we like to think of it that way or not. The criminal justice system is something that, you know, laws that uh, the elected officials we put in office uh, create and design. And that's how house incarceration came about. And that's how over time, jails and prisons became our leading mental health institutions. In the case of the shadow people, we're not, we're talking about something very different. These, you know, industrial slaughterhouses, poultry, beef, pork, um, these are private institutions owned by large corporations. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in, in, in a certain sense, uh, a person listening might say, well, what does that have to do with me? Um, but of course, it has a lot to do with a lot of us because of Kentucky Fried Chicken mm-hmm. and McDonald's consumption. And, you know, yeah. Consumption. What what we choose to eat and and how the things we eat are produced. Um, and, you know, and, and the shadow people I, I look at are part of this kind of invisible workforce that um, really processes most of the meat and 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 chicken and, and poultry and, and so forth. And, that, that goes into the American diet and into our consumption habits. Um, and so, uh, you know, I look at um, the, the conditions they work under, and there, there certainly has been a lot of attention paid to how animals are treated in uh, the industrial food system, the work of Michael Pollan, the work of Jonathan Safran Four and other writers mm-hmm. who have drawn attention to this, um, leading some people, you know, many people to, to question whether they, they want to eat meat at all. Um, but I, there's been far less attention paid to the folks who do the work. And that's really the focus of that section of the book. I felt like I wanted to look at, you know, what do they go through? Um, and what is it like to stand on the lines and do this kind of work day after day? Um, and one of the main things that, that I learned is that because of the demand and the low cost of meat and, and, and chicken in, in this society, uh, the lines are run really fast, and they're run faster and faster. And that leads not just to physical injuries, but also to potential emotional you know, uh, abuse, uh, because in this particular poultry plant, there was a problem with bathroom breaks. The, the mostly female workers at this plant wanted to take a break. Um, they were yelled at, and you know because things were moving so fast, you you, you either did that during your half hour for lunch or you didn't do it at all. Yeah. Um, and so uh, I look at um, this whole dynamic and raise questions about you know how our our food system is is organized and who pays the price for that. Yeah. Uh, there's also something about the undocumented status of these workers that I think is really critical to this part of the book and to this discussion. It's easier in this country to overlook people when we can assign a label to them that says their lives don't matter as much as the rest of ours. And that that word, undocumented, has become one of those labels. I mean, there there is this entire way of thinking uh, about people who come to this country without uh, going through the the, 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 the legal challenge the, the legal channels that has allowed us to say well it's it's kind of okay that uh, that they're doing this or that they're being treated this way because they have some culpability in in the equation Right. And I, and I think that and what I try to show in this section of the book is that, um, you know, this workforce, um, this this is this didn't come about by accident. Um, this was by design. 
in other words, if uh, uh, some folks remember The Jungle by Upton Sinclair, mm-hmm. famous muckraking book about turn of the century slaughterhouses uh, in big industrial cities, Chicago, and, and you know the meat plants that existed back then. Um, most of the workforce then was immigrant labor, yeah. uh, just just you know the same same kind of thing. Um, over the course of the 20th century, that changed, and unions formed, and um, you know wages improved. It was still very difficult work. It was, uh, you know, I think some people would would see it as inherently dirty because it involves you know killing animals and, and, and processing, you know that. But but the conditions did improve. Uh, and then in the 70s and 80s, uh, it reverted back. And this was a, an industrial strategy. This was, uh, you know, there was a one particular company that, that decided, you know, we can run things cheaper by hiring um, ununionized workers. And lo and behold, they started, you know, the different companies started recruiting, uh, you know, immigrants and refugees and so forth. And so it's this kind of double game where, you know, if, the, if there's a, a federal inspection or a raid, Everybody, you know, pretends that that you know this is that everybody should should be documented, and the companies don't know about it. But in reality, if you talk to the workers, it's pretty well understood that um, you know the undocumented workers are uh, there for a reason because they're more easy to control. Uh, they're less likely to form unions. They're less likely to speak out. Mm. Um, and, and assert their rights if they're mistreated, because, of course, they're worried not just about, you know, potentially getting fired, but potentially being deported. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Michael on Twitter says, I worked in highly dangerous jobs while I was younger, since I was lucky and went to university and I got a, quote, safe job. One alarming thing was the pay at the dangerous jobs was so low compared to even the easiest roles at offices. Is this systemic? Why don't they pay more? Uh, pay is is one of the things that drives people to this kind of work, uh, IL, is that they need the money. But of course, the money is often not even enough to sustain to sustain their lives. Talk about the role of, of money and pay uh, in this dirty work. Absolutely. I mean, as I said of Harriet Kraskowski in the in the beginning, uh, when I was talking about why she got this job at a prison, she needed a job. Um, she was she had two kids at the time, and um, her her husband did not have a job. Um, they needed to get by somehow. That's true of a lot of the workers I write about in this book. You know, that these are sort of jobs of last resort that they that they you know ended up taking because there wasn't a better alternative. And it's absolutely the case that, um, you know, despite the both physical and emotional risks that these, these workers takes to take on uh, the burdens and the risks, um, the pay is low, uh, and and it, it really does speak to what what you know Michael has, has said of his own experience, which is this sense that you know why is that? Well, you're putting your your life on the line. Um, and, and it should make us question. And, and by the way, there, there is a section of my book about um, you know, the government's role in all this. We do have a Department of Labor and we have uh, OSHA, you know, the Occupational Safety um, Agency, that is supposed to um, you know, police or regulate, uh, at least regulate the workforce so that job, jobs that are, are dangerous, that put workers in physical danger, um, that the companies are held accountable for that. But one of the things I discovered, and it still bothers me, and it's, it's just it's it's shocking, is that companies, the, the the amount first of all, OSHA's unable to regulate effectively mm-hmm. because its budget is so small. Secondly, when they do find a violation, the penalty to a company for even a worker death is, you know, pocket change to these these companies. Um, they are often forced to pay far more for violating an environmental regulation. Uh, and that tells you something about what value we place on the lives of those workers. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, we're going to take another quick break. And when we come back, we'll continue this conversation with IL Press about 
his book, Dirty Work. Uh, we'll also continue to hear from you, the listeners, on the phones and on social. Give us a call. Tell us about jobs that you think of as dirty or undesirable. Why do we allow people to have to do those jobs? Are you somebody who is doing a job in a prison or sometimes uh, some other place that uh, is hidden from most of our eyes. Uh, what is that work like? Uh, do you wish that there were other work available? Do you wish more people understood the emotional and mental anguish that you might be feeling uh, in your job day to day? Give us a call. 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phone. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we'll work you into the conversation that way. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Bringing you news that matters. Stories that impact your life. Music from the Motor City and around the world. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. We've got IL Press with us this hour. He is an author of a new book, Dirty Work, Essential Jobs and the Hidden Toll of Inequality in America. We're talking about jobs that uh, many of us would think of as undesirable, jobs that we don't see people doing so much as we just kind of know that they exist and that people have to do them. Uh, we're talking about the inequality that represents because some of that work uh, forces people to make decisions that uh, aren't exactly uh, moral. It makes people make choices about things that most of us wouldn't want to think of having to do ourselves. Uh, as always, on the phones, we want to hear about your sense of work, and especially after the pandemic, how work has changed, how our view of work has changed. Are there jobs that you maybe would do before that you wouldn't do now? Uh, are there jobs that you think of people doing and maybe despair about what that does to them physically, mentally, maybe emotionally? Uh, what would we do differently to eliminate that kind of work, eliminate the need for people to be trapped in that kind of work? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll include you in the conversation that way. Uh, I.L., I want to talk about uh, the chapter Essential Workers because, as I just mentioned, the pandemic does really reframe the idea of work for us in this country, and there are a lot of people who are making choices about work that look really different now than they did before. Uh, but you also have folks who didn't have as much choice during the pandemic as the rest of us did. These essential workers, as we called them, I thought that was a, a kind of strange euphemism, given that much of the work they were doing was especially dangerous during the pandemic. Uh, uh, talk about how essential workers fit into the context of the dirty work that you're talking about in the book. Yeah, I mean, I think the, that term is, is a really interesting one, because as you say, you know, it was sort of, um, you know, in fact, uh, in the building I live in, there's a little sign saying, you know, honor our, our essential workers during the pandemic. It's still up the public. Know, has been there since the beginning of the pandemic. And I think there was this sort of collective realization, just as, as uh, early part of the pandemic, that we all relied on, um, you know, workers who we rarely saw to do all these tasks that, that run our society, you know, delivering the packages and, you know, making sure groceries are there and, um, you know, uh, driving the buses and, and, and so forth. Um, but I don't think that, that that recognition translates into 
better wages, better working conditions, uh, more humane treatment for the workers. Certainly, if you look at, you know, uh, meatpacking, uh, you know, hundreds, thousands of workers uh, in the early part of the pandemic were ordered to go to work in uh, slaughterhouses where basic safety precautions had not been and as a result, you know, many got sick and, and some died. Um, and, you know, to go back to what you said about, you know, undocumented, well, that, you know, these are not workers who have much of a voice, have much social clout. And so, um, you know, one, one side we were hearing these were essential workers and seeing them honored uh, at, at ceremonies at the White House and, and elsewhere. And on the other side, we were seeing that... Um, you know, there was very little being done to actually protect them and make make their lives better. Um, so, I think that the pandemic kind of brought this to a full, to, to you know, brought awareness to this, put a spotlight on it. I do think there's been a change. It's, it's an ongoing change within the American workforce as people are reevaluating. You know, is the job I do worth it to me? Um, do you know? There were obviously many people who, who decided, no, it mm-hmm. wasn't. And, you know, we had this phrase, the great, you know, a lot of people resigning or, or not, not deciding not to go back to jobs that they'd had. Um, but I will say that that requires a certain level of economic security. And in a society where we still have a lot of working poor, we still have a lot of folks who are, you know, living paycheck to paycheck, I'm very thin margins, worried if, you know, uh, an accident or an injury uh, could bankrupt them, um, your, your choices are constrained. Mm-hmm. And, and you're not able to just pick and choose the jobs that you feel, you know, lend dignity to your life. You, you, you do the things you have to do to get by. Um, and that's, you know, pretty central dynamic in, in my book, and I think still a central dynamic in our society, even post-pandemic. Yeah. I mean, there is that profound inequality in in that, that term itself, the great resignation, the idea that uh, that it's it's a it's universal, the idea of people being able to 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 quit work and say I'm going to do something something else. These essential workers I think don't quite they don't quite fit into that into that description, do they? That's right. That's right. And and in the last section of my book, I actually do look at, and, and some listeners may be wondering, well, wait a minute, what about white-collar jobs mm-hmm. that involve a sort of ethically troubling uh, activity of some kind, you know, uh, selling deceptive, uh, um, you know, uh, stock packages that, that end up um, bankrupting people or, or, you know, corporate lobbyists and so forth. I look at the tech world um, and Silicon Valley. And in the past few years, uh, there's really been an enormous number of tech workers uh, uh, who have kind of come forward and said, wait a minute, what is this technology I'm designing doing? Mm-hmm. You know, whether it's a social media app or a company that, um, you know, set, I look at Google, actually, and one particular work at Google, who goes into the job thinking, you know, this is all about making information freely available and search engines and so forth. And then discovers that there's been a, uh, an arrangement with China uh, for a search engine that uh, doesn't work if you put in terms like democracy, um, you know, and and um, and becomes very morally troubled by that. And I think the key difference with those white collar, you know, workers who are coming who are asking these questions is that they tend to be people who have, you know, a lot of. Uh, highly desirable skills mm-hmm. and education and, you know, advanced degrees, and they can land on their feet if they go elsewhere. They've got choices. Um, and I think when we talk about, you know, folks working in slaughterhouses, folks working in prisons, that's a different story. Yeah. There's a lot less choice for them. And you spend some time in the book also, and I want to make sure we talk about this, They're talking about the role that all of us play in maintaining the the economic infrastructure that requires these jobs. We talked a little about um, you know our consumption of of 
meat and and other products that that drive um, you know slaughterhouses and these other kinds of places that are that are bad places to work. But it goes it goes beyond that. I mentioned Amazon uh, a, a while back, and you know I, I have to say up front, I, I'm somebody who absolutely loves the idea of finding something that I want to buy on the internet, pressing a button and watching it roll up to the house, you know, in, yep. in 24 hours or less right now. Uh, in, in places like Detroit, we're able to get things same day if you spend enough money. Um, and, and I never stop really to think about how that plays into somebody doing a job that is unbearable, that there is a cost of producing goods at that pace and delivering them the way they do that, that makes this part of the inequality you're pointing out. Yeah, well, I think that, I mean, that, look, we're all, I, I think I wrote the book and I'm pointing at myself as much as anyone else. Um, we're all feeling those questions these days because we have, we live in a world that, you know, 30, 40 years ago, if you told people you could do that, you know, press a button and get something delivered to your door the next day, um, you know, it would have seemed like an unimaginable luxury. Mm -hmm. um, and it is very convenient, and it is very appealing on a lot of levels. But what we don't stop to think about enough, I think, is what is the cost of that convenience? You know, when you go to a store, a local store, run by a family or a neighbor or someone you you recognize, you see the folks working there, um, you interact, you have some human conversation. Um, we don't have those conversations with the deliverer, you know, the person who delivers that package, um, let alone with the person in the warehouse who was, you know, maybe being pushed at an you know, to the breaking point uh, to get that to your door quickly. And so I really think there is uh, a cost that, that we're not seeing that, you know, people are living. There are people that are on the other end of that. And so, you know, part of the point of the book and, and, and really of, I hope, this conversation is, is to get us thinking more about, you know, is, is, is our convenience worth that? And, and shouldn't we have in a society that is, you know, so advanced that can, that can technologically pull that off, Shouldn't we also have, you know, take the time to make sure that no one's being exploited mm. when that happens? You know, that someone doesn't have to wind up on painkillers or in, in the, you know, in the hospital or with with a with a debil you know, Just think about the lives of the folks doing this labor, um, and and whether we really want a society that hides that. Yeah, uh, we, we've got a f just a few minutes left, but uh, I, I would be remiss if I didn't put this in the context of uh, of labor in in a historical sense and of course the labor that that grew here in Detroit and Henry Ford's $5 day and the unionization that then uh, grew inside the industry and made life better for so many people built the middle class in this city at least and and some people would say uh, throughout uh, America, it, it stands in such contrast, I feel, to some of the things that you're talking about in, in this book. And of course, at the time that the auto industry is, is changing work in this country, there is, there is still dirty work that's being done as well. But, but I wonder what you make of that, um, that juxtaposition of the things that we have accomplished in the 20th century in terms of making work safer, better, higher paying, uh, making sure that people are taken care of after they're done, and the persistence of this dirty work at the same time. Yeah, well, I, I you know, I, I grew up in Buffalo, um, so I'm a, a, a real, I have a real, you know, connection to the Rust Belt mm -hmm. and to mm -hmm. the, the, the parts of the country that um, really suffered when uh, a lot of plants shut down and moved south or then eventually moved overseas. And, you know, I, I don't know the story of Detroit the way I know the story of Buffalo, but in, in Buffalo, you know, when I grew up, 
there were a lot of folks who had worked those middle class jobs who, you know, when they were gone, ended up, you know, taking jobs that paid less or more precarious or didn't have the benefits uh, and didn't have the sense of um, security that it gave people. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, we really haven't replaced those jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe we shouldn't replace them because we shouldn't romanticize, uh, you know, what, what that work entailed. Um, but I don't think we're going to a better place when, you know, you read about um, folks who are in these Amazon warehouses um, working, in, you know, under equally, if not more arduous conditions, but without the union, without the job security, without the um, sense that you can support a family on this job and uh, and retire one day. Um, so, you know, I think that, that we, we have not made progress in that sense, certainly not in, in parts of the country that have felt the pain of losing mm-hmm. those jobs. Um, on the other hand, I think that, that unions are... are staging a comeback in, in different parts of the labor force. And that's a really, really interesting thing. You see it at, at Starbucks and Chipotle, sure. and, you know, all these places where we don't associate with unions are suddenly forming unions. Yeah. Okay, uh, IL Press, uh, it was really wonderful to have you here with us for this conversation. Congratulations on the book. And again, thanks for joining us on Detroit Today. Thank you so much for having me going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow. We're going to talk about a new report that reveals how Michigan kids are doing as a result of the intense pandemic. This is 1019 WDETFM, the great NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.